You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Lynn, welcome back to Real Vision. It's the first time you and I have actually sat down to chat, so I'm I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, nice to have me, and it's great to meet you. Um, can you give people a bit of background about yourself, just so those who aren't familiar with you know a bit more about you? Yeah, sure. My background blends kind of engineering and finance, so uh, I've been investing since I was like you know really young. But uh, my my career path started out in engineering. Uh, and then I gradually shifted more towards kind of engineering management and engineering the like the managing the finances of an engineering facility, while shifting more and more into pl- applying that kind of quantitative background to finance uh, investing. Uh, so that's kind of how I approach things in a, in a pretty quantitative way. And so, what what do you do now exactly? Uh, so I run Lindon.com, which is a research firm. So uh, I I have a, you know a free newsletter, and then I have a, a paid service uh, that you know it's kind of um it has a blend of of uh, you know kind of high net worth retail investors like retirees and then all up to the professional investors. Uh, so kind of a lot of it kind of takes some of the complex kind of macro topics that might be more covered in institutional research and then distills them for a broader audience. Uh, that's kind of the main focus. So how did you get into macro to start with? What, Where out of engineering, which is a detailed discipline process, into yeah. macro, which is a broader process? How? Why did that happen? It was a gradual transition because uh, so I actually started more in individual stock analysis, and I still do that um, uh, because I feel like the the bottom up analysis and the top down analysis uh, they help inform each other. So sometimes the bottom level analysis can inform my view of the top as well. Um, but I started out in individual stocks, uh, but I you know over the years I realized that we're in a very macro heavy environment. Uh, it's kind of you know I, I refer to it as the end of a long term debt cycle. Or you know, fourth turning. You can kind of call it different ways. Kind of a a, a large kind of a transition. Uh, and so I realized that you know the individual stock analysis is only capturing a part of the picture, and that I really have to look at macro uh, and to to kind of move move assets around kind of big uh, you know recessions and things like that, and get the general directions of asset classes right. So when you made that transition, you you have to come up with a macro framework. Where did your framework come from? What what was the genesis of it, and then how did it develop over time? So, so a lot of it actually, uh, in my view, comes from uh, control engineering. So my my engineering discipline is mostly controls analysis. So it's kind of like managing a system that has hundreds of inputs and outputs, and figuring out the relationships and making sure you know kind of for every action there's like a, a, a opposite reaction. So if you think of like say a thermostat as a simple control system, if the temperature goes up, it kicks in and it reduces the temperature. So a control system is like that, but you know there are hundreds of variables instead of just one or two. And so I realized essentially that that macro is one one big input output machine essentially, and there's there's all these uh, reactions that can happen to it, uh, and then there's policy responses that that push things back down and have then ripple effects downstream. So a lot of it is essentially kind of looking at things from a control systems framework into macro and using some of the same kind of quantitative background to, to kind of apply it in that space. So when I um, approach macro, I approach it in terms of secular cycles and the business cycle. How do you approach it in terms of, you know, what is your kind of basic framework of of how you look at it? Uh, Similar way. So I I monitor uh, a lot of economic indicators and rate of change terms uh, to see how how things are changing before we we get into an actual, like, you know, contraction in some ways or before we get to an expansion. Uh, So that's kind of the business cycle analysis. And then uh, I use a lot of historical uh, data research to kind of figure out what are the major turning points where something can act a lot differently than a normal business cycle. And so, for example, in this environment, um, I was in kind of this weird phase for the past couple of years because I've been I've been bearish from a business cycle perspective, thinking we're late in the business cycle, things are expensive, but also still being somewhat more bullish than I would otherwise be on equity, uh, you know, uh, and and risk assets, uh, which which. Which played out pretty well so far because uh, I expected such a large fiscal response this time, and that was informed by a lot of the longer-term stuff. Seeing kind of how close we are to the zero bound, how the Fed's going to be somewhat limited, and then it's really going to be a more fiscal environment. And 
you know, long-term debt cycles often get resolved with with just partially with very large fiscal responses and, and some degree of currency devaluation. So I've been using that as my framework to kind of augment how I think this cycle can play out compared to, to say, you know, the past two cycles or so. So, well, you know, I, I obviously I look at the same things. And one of the things that puzzles me is why, why do the actions of the Fed affect the U.S. asset mar- markets while the actions of the ECB, the SMB, the BOE, and the BOJ don't really affect their asset markets in the same way in terms of risk appetite. Why, why, is, why do you think that mechanism is? Because it's weird, right? Because the ECB yeah. can do as much as they want, and it won't drive the euro stocks up and down. Yeah. But uh, is it just a reaction function or a behavioral function or Pavlovian or what? I think it could be behavioral. I think there's a couple of runs. If you, if you separate out the top five or six stocks uh, from the U.S. equity market and just look at how the other you know, 490-some stocks behave, uh, they look in some ways more like the Euro stock index, right? So they've been flat-ish for the past decade or so, whereas the top, you know, five, six, seven stocks have really kind of lifted the whole index. Uh, so if you kind of separate those like super companies out, there's less of a, a difference in some ways. And then also, uh, I, kind of a general thing I've just observed is that you know, global real estate many places is is even more expensive than U.S. real estate. Uh, a lot of uh, uh, foreign investors focus more heavily on real estate. And the U.S. has just always had these really big, deep capital markets, and there's more of an, a global emphasis on the U.S. equity market. Uh, and so I think our relationship between real estate and equity is a little bit more equity-focused than a lot of other places. Uh, that's, yeah. that's kind of the... There, was a, there used to be a, a lovely thing people used to talk about that made total sense. My whole career, people just said, listen, contract one thing. The Fed run the monetary system for the equity market, and the Buddhist bank run it for the bond market. And when you understood that, that was just a great trade. Well, sorry, everybody. I don't know what's happening. This is why the US needs an infrastructure bill at some point. Because <laughs> they are in New Jersey, and I've got a better internet here in Little Cayman than you've got, which is quite bizarre. So we were talking about um, how the Fed run monetary policy for the equity market in the US, and the Bundesbank ran it for the bond market. And that's always been a truism. <clears throat> they just look at things in different ways. Um, yeah. So... I, you know, I, I just find it interesting that, therefore, if it's a behavioral function, is it robust? Or is that a fragile assumption that gets tested? I think it's very fragile. I think, uh, you know, this, this big equity run uh, was in some ways expected. But, for example, it went further than I would have guessed a few months ago. So my base case for a while is that that, that March bottom was a pretty resilient bottom. Uh, and that, uh, you know, we probably weren't going to see that for a while. Uh, but I didn't necessarily expect to reach, you know, all-time highs back in the S&P 500 uh, here in August. Uh, so it came up a lot faster than I would have thought. I would have expected more chop and maybe more sideways consolidation for a while, uh, you know, even if we didn't see that lower low. Uh, so I think it's potentially quite fragile. And, you know, there can always be just a few quarters of just worse economic data than people think. And, you know, this this whole... I think the Fed's doing could kind of just, you know, be unwound to some extent. And I think uh, one of my base cases is, that, you know, the Fed's mostly now out of out of ammo by itself, and it's more about fiscal at this point. So whether or not we get fiscal and how much and what it what kind of areas it's in kind of is affects my view of macro more than anything the Fed does now. Uh, and the Fed's job will be to monetize some of that fiscal, but it's really more about the the fiscal things because the Fed can't do almost anything about the solvency issues, whereas the fiscal spending can do some some things about the solvency issues. And I think that's going to be the bigger role going forward is fiscal. Yeah. So as you know, my base case is that we're going to get into a solvency problem because GDP growth is probably going to stay negative for yeah. a longer period of time than people expect, and solvency builds on itself. It creates you know more job losses. Yeah. And- slower growth. What's your view on the solvency situation going forwards? Yeah, similar. I had a, I had a piece a few months ago called first liquidity and then solvency. So, you Which know, the liquidity exactly I had. Yeah. Yeah, the the liquidity thing was back in March and April and then we got that out of the way and I think that's that's pretty under control now. I think the Fed is kind of vigilant. So, uh, we see a, we see a pretty fast response time, but there should be a more you know, more liquidity shocks. Uh, but solvency still has a lot to play out. I mean, we've seen a lot of the job losses turn permanent. Uh, and uh, and I think that's probably going to continue. I think there's a you know we we've seen the kind of the the service sector shut off and then start to rebound. So we had that rebound in some areas, but I still think we have a normal credit cycle to play out and and you know probably more than normal because it's bigger than normal. 
So uh, I still think we have kind of the, the, the more kind of white collar uh, job losses or the more kind of professional job losses that, that were not necessarily directly tied to, you know, service sector kind of pandemic stuff. Uh, so I still think this has a long way to go. And there's not much the Fed can do about that. Uh, so it kind of comes down to how much the fiscal authorities want to let that solvency event play out or how much they try to intervene. But the question is, is how, you know, because of, I think you alluded to the beginning, is the size of the debt cycle here. Sure, the Fed are backstopping corporate bonds. I mean, it's crazy. They buy Microsoft bonds and stuff like that. But there's the whole middle rump of all of this that is an issue because there's debt, there's lower revenue streams. Yeah. Um, and so what you've got is a potential insolvency. Insolvencies tend to go slowly and then pick up over time. Yeah. I, I don't know what size government response can deal with that. They can they can do it for short periods, but how do you backstop a system for six months or nine months or a year? I think they do it bursts, uh, and I think that we're gonna kind of have these bottlenecks where for a while they don't do it, and then some of the market signals or some of the civil unrest are their signals that that force them to do another round. So, for example, back in March we got this you know roughly three trillion dollars in stimulus. So we have a weird case if you look at all the economic indicators: GDP is down, employment's down, exports and imports are down, uh, industrial production is down, construction's okay, and then retail sales are up at all all time highs. Uh, and that's because personal income is actually back. It's it's higher than it was when the year started, because uh, you know the people that didn't even lose their jobs got those stimulus checks, uh, and the people that lost their job, a, a good percentage of them actually made more money with all the with all the offsets, all the extra unemployment benefits. Uh, but that all kind of came to an end, uh, you know, at the end of July. So now we're kind of off this fiscal cliff, and the and the market's still kind of going up like wildly coyote. So I think the big question in the next couple of months is whether or not wildly we get coyote market. I like it. Yeah. yeah. So the yeah the big question is not is whether or not we get this big fiscal thing that they're talking about, or if that gets gridlocked for months. Uh, and you know, so my base case is that because it's an election year, it's, they're likely to pass something and kind of kick the can down the road for another few months at a time. But in this market, it's really hard to look more than a few months ahead because it really all comes down to the next round of fiscal. And I view it as kind of bouncing back and forth between either they're doing fiscal and markets are reacting okay, and we get kind of probably more more currency weakness uh, on one hand, or when they kind of pull back with the fiscal, uh, you know, we can kind of see a slowdown in some of those indicators. Uh, but then, you know, I think it's kind of like how, for example, Powell. Uh, back in 2018, was on autopilot with with tightening until the market kind of crashed in, in Q4 and it made him change his tune. I think that's kind of how fiscal can play out. Where you know, as long as the stock market is 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 doing well and I you know there's not a lot of stress, uh, policymakers uh, will delay things. But then when you have kind of a you know market sell-offs or you have kind of a rise in civil unrest, it spurs them into action again. I think we could see this dynamic kind of go back and forth for a little while. And that was much the same with QE one, two, three. They were, you know, yeah. the Fed would do QE, step back, the markets would unsettle, the economy would unsettle, they'd come back again. Yeah. I think we're going to see a similar thing, except with fiscal more so than, than Fed action. So, one of the things I've been thinking about fiscal, I mean, I, I totally agree with you, but at some point, there's chances of something much larger coming. Yeah. You know, because if, if let's say they have a couple of shots at fiscal and it kind of just inflates for a bit, falls again, you know, kind of Japan style, then there's a chance that they're going to say, fine, we're going to do a five trillion, X trillion, you know, yeah. new, new deal style spend. And, you know, it'll be different depending whether it's on the left or the right. What do you, yeah. you know, and that's kind of, I think, closer to the end game when they start to do something absolutely enormous. What are your thoughts on, on how this kind of fiscal evolves? I agree completely. So I think that's why my longer-term view is a more reflationary environment and a trend shift from you know this past four decades of disinflation to a, a more inflationary environment. And I think that's because if you look at their incentive structure, the the main kind of um, a limiter on how much fiscal they do uh, while keeping you know using yield curve control and other tools to keep yields low, uh, the eventual uh, you know kind of risk to that is inflation. Uh, and like unmistakable consumer price inflation. Well, so as long where as do you, where do you get that from? That's what I don't. I understand that there is a probability of it, but in a slow growth environment with an aging population, I don't know how to generate inflation because we've never seen it elsewhere either. Yeah. So uh, just going back to that point, I think their incentive structure is essentially that basically. 
as long as there's no inflation, then the big question anyone can ask is why not print more money? Because if they print three trillion dollars and all it does is good things, from, from as far as people can tell, people you know small businesses were going to go out of business and then they got you know a PPP loan that, that gets forgiven, or people got six hundred extra a week, they got more more money from not working than working, or just as much. Uh, people got stimulus checks in addition to their normal working, and so they think, okay, why not why not do it again? If there's no if there's no downside to printing money, why not print more? And of course, as long as they print money and there's no kind of outright inflation. Uh, it seems like there's no consequence. And if you look back in the previous crisis, you know the co- the consequence of that money printing was, uh, you know, kind of an increase in wealth inequality over time. It didn't really affect the root issue. But that's because the it wasn't really fiscally driven. It was just central bank kind of recapitalizing banks, uh, propping up the wealth effect. Whereas this is more direct to economy stimulus that gets mostly monetized. And so, you know, with that, when they do it, it feels really good. And literally, the only limiter at that point is inflation. So as long as they don't see inflation, uh, it's really hard for them to say, "Okay, we did all that. There was no consequences, but we're going to stop now." Uh, so I think we're kind of in that environment where, you know, when we see weaker growth, the question becomes louder: like, why not do more? Uh, and then they do more, and then they, you know, they say, "Okay, that's enough," and they they pull back, and then we see a more disinflationary environment again, and the people say, "Why not do more?" And I think that kind of repeats until they 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 kind of get the the genie out of the bottle a little bit. That's my base case. Yeah, I'm still still not sure that that inflation genie comes out. The market's expectation of inflation genie might come out. And maybe you're you're right, but I've just noticed in the past, you know, going through 2001, 2008, fiscal stimulus didn't generate anything longer than two quarters of, of some sort of growth. And it didn't really, people don't think of it as a perpetual state and therefore and therefore, earnings expectations, et cetera, don't rise. Yeah. And consumer behavior doesn't change because they think of it as an emergency measure. Therefore, they hoard the capital as opposed to spending it. Um, and we saw that a lot in Japan. You know, they just couldn't get fiscal to really, you know, they built tons yeah. of new stuff, didn't really work. So, you know, I'm not sure that that plays out, but the fiscal is going to be a big deal. What do you see in terms of, okay, by the election, there's going to be two very different fiscal stimuluses. If it's, if it's the Republicans or the Democrats, talk us through the two different scenarios that you're thinking through. Yeah, so uh, it's interesting because a lot of people's big question is who wins, whereas my question is more about how decisively whoever wins wins. Uh, because let's say you get a Biden victory, but the Senate is still red, right? Then I think we're in a situation that looks a lot like the you know the the Obama presidency, where the last six years of it, where you had kind of that that gridlock between between you know what Obama wanted to do and what the Senate wanted to do. Um, and so if you get, say, a blue sweep, it, I think we're going to obviously be in a very spendy environment. If you get you know, a, a pretty strong red hold, I think we can still see a pretty strong spending environment because Trump's going to want to spend. And you know, if the House stays blue, they're, they're still going to want to spend. And there's going to be some disagreement there between how, what they spend on, like we're seeing right now. Uh, whereas if you get kind of that, that more gridlock scenario, I think that's when you get uh, kind of a longer, longer period until they do more spending. And I think you could have more of a disinflationary environment, or at least an elevated risk of that happening. So for me, you know, there's definitely different flavors the spending will take depending on who wins. Uh, but my biggest question right now is kind of how decisive and how, how kind of gridlocked the result is versus if there's a sweep. Yeah, and it's interesting because you can actually see markets pricing in some of this, you know, because there's there's also other things that we can tell is <clears throat> most likely a Democrat victory would see more regulation of oil companies, more regulation of tech companies, yeah, uh, and a few other key areas. And some of that's being priced in. It seems to be coming a little bit out now as maybe the spread between Biden and Trump diminishes. What would be the, the winners in kind of sector terms on a Trump victory for you? I think that could be stronger for the equity market than a Biden victory. Uh, just because I think we, you know, the mar- if a Biden victory happens, you could see kind of pricing in of higher corporate taxes in general. Um, you know, I, I think you're right about kind of the tech regulation. Uh, I don't see a very strong kind of sector difference necessarily between who wins. It's more about the the overall magnitude. A chart that I've been showing is that uh, if you look at effective corporate tax rates, so not just the headline rate, but the actual kind of uh, you know a couple of different ways to calculate it, but the effective uh, payment rate, uh, that's been kind of steadily declining for for decades. Uh, and so even when there's not a headline change, there's still other changes that keep pushing that rate down. And I think we're you know. 
that that number, the effective version of it is something somewhere in the ten percent range for the federal side, and so I think we're kind of getting to a lower bound probably for corporate tax rates. And so this 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 very long kind of secular bull market we've had has been an environment of perpetually lower and lower effective corporate tax rates, and I think that that could you know either flatline. Uh, in some cases, or it could reverse, and we could get higher effective corporate tax rates. And I think that's something that could pressure equity markets uh, kind of throughout the 2020s decade. Uh, and, so, it, and of course, the odds for that increase if if you get a Biden victory. Yeah. So we're now getting closer to approaching the selection period and the period of no stimulus. Does that make you more nervous on the equity market? You want to hedge yes. downside, or do you want to trade the downside? How are you thinking of the equity market in this particular moment? Yeah, so I, I de-risked a little bit in June, uh, and I've been kind of holding that steady. Uh, and uh, I, I have been contemplating de-risking a little bit further now because uh, this this fiscal gridlock is currently in place. Uh, and I think, as I've been saying, that the you know because uh, my outlook is pretty fiscal heavy. The big question is if we get those fiscal holdups, I do think we risk more and more seeing uh, you know kind of pullbacks and some risk assets. So we we've been seeing really bad breath in the market. Uh, so it's only a handful of winners that have really driven this market up, and I think that's at risk of of setting up some downside if there's not more fiscal. Uh, so for me, it's it's less about say virus headlines or about uh, you know these these kind of one time things, and more about whether or not they they throw another trillion or two at things or if that gets delayed. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. And what would be something that would be to make you think there's more risk? Because if, for what you're saying, is, you know, things could fall, it goes back up again, things could fall as new fiscal. What could change that or? make it a more risk environment? Because if not, it's pretty benign. It's just more volatile. Yeah. Uh, well, I think a, a risk of increased taxation uh, is definitely something that could, that could um, you know, pressure equities uh, pretty heavily. Uh, I think, uh, obviously, an increase in the, in the China-US uh, tensions uh, could, could add a lot of downside volatility. Uh, and my base case for, the, for equity markets over the whole 2020s decade is to be pretty poor, uh, you know, especially in real terms. Uh, let alone nominal, uh, depending on what inflation does, depending on you know who ends up being right about the level of inflation we get throughout the whole decade. But at least in, uh, I think the safer answer is in real terms, I expect pretty poor equity performance. Uh, and so whether or not we get a really bearish outcome, uh, I think is up in the air. But I think my my the upside is is not great, uh, you know, even long term. So then, okay, so the equity market, and I agree, it's not a great trade. Um, for a longer, you know, for a longer term, time horizon doesn't seem that's particularly good trade. Yeah. What about the bond market? Sounds like you're going to be n more negative. I'm kind of my view is bond yields probably have another stab lower, um, and then the trade's over. And it, but I doubt we get bond yields rising because either the Fed stop it or the disinflationary trend stays. What's your view on bonds? I agree. My base case is um, that you know even if we were to rise, the Fed will cap yields. Uh, so that's been a, a big piece of my work lately, uh, and they've already been openly talking about potentially doing that. So it's it's all on the table out for everyone to see. Uh, so we've had a you know we had the big March spike. So we had that you know we had uh, you know bond yields go down tremendously. Your trade worked out very well. Uh, so from and from that low level during that really illiquid portion, we had kind of the whole treasury market become a liquid. Uh, yield spiked very briefly. The Fed came in with a liquidity hammer and took trillion dollars of, of treasures off the market in three weeks and hammered that spike back down. Then we've been we've been in this like sideways period. We had a little bit of a treasury spike in June, but it, the market just brought that right down by itself. And lately, the past couple past week or so, we've been in this uh, rising. You know, that we had another yield spike here. Uh, it seems to be back on the downtrend, but it's unclear at the moment. Uh, so my my case is essentially that there's not a lot of range for bonds because sure we could have another uh, you know deflationary shock we could have one of those risk off events that I talked about potentially spurring them to do more fiscal so we could have say a lower low in bonds we hit the zero bound perhaps uh, so there's not a ton of room there and if they go up which I think they might try to do when we get a more inflationary environment if that if that outcome works out I do think they cap it uh, and that's so I think, more likely 2021 than it is 2020 yeah. Yeah, uh, and so 
you know, I think they could lay the, it's possible they could lay the groundwork for yield curve control later because it's a way to give forward guidance, but I don't think they're going to have to do kind of hard yield curve control in 2020 uh, because this is, uh, you know, still playing out. Uh, so I think the bond trade is is pretty weak at this point. Uh, and uh, the, one of the big things I'm watching, which is curious, I'm actually be curious to hear your thoughts on too, is that we've had a divergence between break-evens and nominals. So if you look back over the past, you know, 15 plus years of data, there's only ever been one period where we had break-evens trades, you know, so far above nominals. And that was in about a year from 2012 to 2013. So if you look at this period, you know, nominal yields came down and they've been, they've stayed low in this, in this range, whereas break-evens, after they hit that March low, they popped right back up. So the Treasury's pricing in higher inflation, uh, or at least a rebound in inflation, not necessarily higher inflation, but a rebound in inflation, and yet they're still keeping nominal slow. So that's kind of one of the things I've been watching, which has been very interesting. I'm not sure if you have thoughts well, on that. Well, it depends who the bar is. So we saw this in the UK, I don't know, 20 years ago, and it was the pension system. Because the pension system had long-term liabilities, they were forcing apart the relationship between break-even and nominals yeah. uh, in hedging that out. So I don't know whether it's just flows-driven as opposed to a signaling. So in the UK, the signaling became useless in the end. Um, so you know, I think the signaling for inflation ended up being better in the nominals than it did in the break-evens because yeah. of flow into break-evens, which are obviously less liquid. You tend to, you know, if the whole pension system decides that we're going to inflationary environment over the next 10 years, and with the pension liabilities that they've got, they probably need to buy break-evens regardless of yeah. you know, whether inflation goes up or not. They need that hedge because if not, they're super bankrupt. They're bankrupt now and then they're super bankrupt later. So it's, yeah. it's possibly that. Don't really know. And so the other thing I'm thinking about, so, okay, we've gone through equities, which don't look like great forward expected returns. You're kind of keeping on to some risk for the time being because fiscal could keep it okay. Bonds. Yeah, they could probably drift lower in yields, but no great trade there. Credit. It feel, you know, we both think there's a solvency event in the making. I, I watch the price every day of AT&T and General Electric and all these big triple Bs, and the equities go down. But the credit is never going to go down because of the Fed. Yeah. I mean, have we lost the credit market now as well? Are we going to lose the bond market at you know, kind of zero bound? We lose the credit market because of the Fed. I think so. I don't know if you saw news the other day. Uh, the New York Metro was was selling bonds, uh, you know, to raise some capital, and banks gave them a bunch of bids, and they gave, they, you know, the market priced it, and they turned around and said, no, we don't like any of those yields, so they sold it to the Fed for a lower yield. Uh, so that was one of the more blatant cases of just just the market had a price, and they they had price discovery, and then the Fed's just, eh, we don't like that number. Uh, so you know, we're in some ways, we're, you know, we're seeing yield curve control in in these you know these riskier markets, uh, not not yet in the in the treasury market. I mean, yeah, the ECB so, did that. I mean, the ECB have done that for almost a decade now. Yeah, yeah, and then they use those they use those like negative yields to go buy out other companies, uh, and it gets it gets it creates all sorts of weird behavior in the market. So uh, yeah, I think that that you know the, the most of that market is not correctly pricing in. Risk to some extent because the Fed is kind of handicapping it. Is so. So my view on that is it's not going to because the Fed are not going to allow it to happen because yeah. it blows up the pension system if it does happen. So the equity market probably has to price in that credit risk, and we've seen that now. You know the banks have massively underperformed. You know the indices and uh, the triple B sectors massively underperformed in equity terms. So I think it may be the equity market prices that in. Yeah, I think it's possible, uh, and that's why you know I still use some individual stock selection to augment my risk exposure rather than rely on indices. So I can I can identify companies that I think have you know longer you know longer positive term outlooks that have kind of the strongest balance sheets in at least in their industry, if not you know either in absolute terms or strongest in their industry. And so I, that's one way to minimize risk if if people are kind of willing to go down to the individual stock level, uh, whereas just from a broad indice level, it's you know it's really challenging. So, okay, moving on to asset classes. Now, we know your view on the dollar, so we've seen that, and the dollar's relatively weak. But where is the opportunity going forwards? Because we've identified you know, the three main other asset classes kind of going nowhere. So, where do you see the opportunities? I see a couple. So, um, you know, to get some out of the way, I think, I think emerging markets have some opportunities throughout the 2020s. Uh, you know, I think it really depends on the market. So instead of just being one market, it's you know it's a collection of so many different markets. Like Russia and, and India and and 
Turkey couldn't be more different. So, you know, I, I see, I kind of analyze each country uh, differently. So I have like, you know, a report that kind of goes over like 30 different countries and just kind of sees what the macro situation is doing. Uh, so I, I do think there are some opportunities in some of these uh, equity markets that have not done well over the past decade. Uh, that are trading at pretty reasonable valuations, and that you know some of the ones have stronger fundamentals, like say less dollar-dominated debt as a percentage of GDP, that sort of thing. So I think we could see some opportunity there. I think after international diversification has mostly you know worsened returns over the past decade, I think it could increase returns over the next yeah, I mean, decade. The emerging markets have massively underperformed. This is the second largest underperformance yeah. in all history. Yeah. So at some point over the next ten years, you know, once the dollar fully turns, whenever that is. It seems like it's a bit of a no-brainer as long as you can get rid of the debt issues that are still out there. Yeah, I think so. And if you look at the big period of underperformance, it made sense because back in 2007, emerging markets got extraordinarily expensive. Uh, like India's CAPE ratio was the same as like the U.S. in the dot-com bubble. Like you hit almost dot-com bubble like valuations in China, India, to some extent Brazil. Uh, so that that's that's kind of worked itself out. Equity valuations have come down, even though there's still been you know an increase in some earnings and GDP growth in those areas. So now we're at you know kind of healthier valuation levels. So if you do get more of a turn, there's more of a base to work up from uh, compared to working up from very high valuations. So I think that's. You know, it's it's pretty rare for an equity market to do well in one decade and then still do well in the next decade. So we we you feel like, so the U.S. has dominated this decade, and now I think we've we've squeezed a lot of juice out of that orange, and I think that that uh, at least some of the stronger emerging markets have decent opportunities over the 2020s. Uh, I, I am uh, somewhat bullish on uh, copper. I think you see it the other way, but um, so copper. Well, I had a trade on. I actually stopped out the other day because I got bored of the trade. But you know. Because at the time I was thinking copper in the, you know, I think I put it on during the liquidity phase, and yeah, it was the only short commodity position I had on because I'm relatively bearish over time industrial commodities because I think yeah. there's more disinflation to come before yeah. we might see a shift. So other than that, so I don't have a massive on copper. Yeah, so yeah, some of those base commodities, uh, if we get the more inflationary outcome, I'd be pretty bullish on those. Uh, we're at a pretty kind of big divergence between commodities underperformance compared to equities. So I, I do think we could see uh, somewhat of a rebound there in time uh, if we're looking over multiple years. And then besides those kind of, those are more of my like uh, risk areas, like the emerging markets and the, and the base you know commodities. Uh, and then precious metals have been uh, one of my key trades since 2018. Uh, both the the gold, silver, and the the gold miners, uh, some of the silver miners as well. So that's that's been a very kind of a useful trade so far. It's getting a little bit harder now because we have come pretty far, and now you know the the real rates uh, has mostly played out. Uh, so now it's it's highly dependent on getting a reflationary outcome uh, and having yield curve control to keep kind of real rates low. So I think that, um, that I'm. Yeah not convinced about the real rates thing. And let me talk you through my thought process, because I think it will align with yours. And I think the market just says real rates, low, gold up, right? Yeah. But from what I can tell, we're going to get deflation, headline deflation for a period of time, just mathematically. And real rates will likely rise. I think they go you know, really quite positive, a bit more positive than people expect. And people say, well, okay, that would be negative gold. But I think about it and I think, okay, so you're the Federal Reserve and you see real rates rise sharply because inflation is lower than people expected. Their reaction function is just to do more. Yeah, exactly. So therefore, gold goes up. It's yeah. kind of, it seems it's only corrective as opposed to a trend change if real rates yeah. change. Yeah, that's how I view it. And this, this last you know, kind of correction we've had, gold and silver came very far, very fast. And then we did see that kind of bottom form in the real rates. We saw like an increase in real rates. And th this time it happened to be because nominals rose, uh, you know, faster than CPI rose. So it was the opposite direction. But uh, we, we saw that pressure on, on precious metals, but it, it seems to have been corrective because the, the long-term fundamentals still support precious metals to some extent because, you know, if we're not going to get rates out of bonds, right? So if you look back in history, there is a pretty strong relationship between real rates and year-over-year uh, -year changes in gold prices. However, it's not perfect, of course. There's other factors that influence it. And so in those environments where you can get a strong, positive real yield on you know, bank accounts or treasuries, there's a big opportunity cost for holding gold. Uh, whereas in this current environment, you know, there's, just, there's, there's no kind of real yield happening uh, in the whole treasury space or in bank accounts. And so it makes the opportunity cost for holding gold uh, much lower. 
Plus, we're seeing other you know, you know countries around the world, like central banks, have been have been shifting more of their assets a little bit into gold over time because they take away that counterparty risk, they take away the sanction risk, they you know they kind of de-dollarize a little bit. We've seen more out of things like Russia and Kazakhstan and you know to some extent China. Uh, so I do think that gold still has uh, pretty strong legs, even if you know real rates are choppy for a while. Uh, like I think you phrased it correctly, they're more they're more corrective rather than kind of major trend changes. Uh, because we're going to, you know, as soon as you see that, you see more money printing and more kind of stimulus. So, how do you see silver versus gold? Because, you know, they're not the same thing. Um, how do you see the difference and why are you favoring silver? I'm long silver as well, but I'm just interested in your, your view. Yeah. So, uh, now I'm, I'm more mixed. So, uh, I was, uh, you know, for a while, gold was outperforming. It tends to do better than silver in those more disinflationary environments. So, you know, real yields were falling since 2018, but it was it was not because CPI was rising. It was the opposite. It's because nominals and CPI were coming down, and nominals were coming down faster. So, gold tends to do well uh, in that sort of you know kind of risk off disinflationary environment, where silver tends to do better in a more reflationary environment. So that's that's what we've seen so far, where we said we had gold outperform until the March crash, and then we've had silver come up strong since then. Uh, now, because the gold silver ratio has has you know normalized a little bit. Uh, I, you know, I think that trades harder now because when silver was extraordinarily cheap relative to gold, and then we had this trend shift towards reflation, I think silver was easy you know, for anyone who's patient and can handle the volatility, isn't leveraged to it or something like that. Uh, whereas now, you know, now I'm more mixed. Now we've had we've had some of that kind of normalization. Uh, so now I don't have a strong opinion between the two, and I like to have both for diversification because they can move on somewhat different forces. And if there is more volatility around fiscal stimulus, stuff like that, so I reflation on, reflation off, reflation on, reflation off, it's likely that silver is more volatile. Then. I mean, it's more volatile anyway, but it, it kind of feels like gold probably is better anchored. Yeah, and I think it can make for good rebalancing uh, to kind of you know extract gains out of that choppiness or more active trading around that choppiness, uh, you know, kind of selling overbought conditions and buying uh, oversold conditions. Uh, so, yeah, I think we could, I think both of them have pretty good prospects throughout the decade. So, I think they, they have a somewhat upward bias, uh, but I think, you know, you can get a lot of money kind of trading uh, around that, that, that bias. And uh, you like gold miners as well. And yeah. Yeah. They've, they've, again, they've come pretty far pretty fast. So, I still like them. I like them less than I liked them in 2018. Uh, but I still, uh, you know, compared to say the S P five hundred, I still like having a, you know, a segment of, of gold miners in my portfolio. Not a, not a big one because kind of like silver, the the volatility is pretty high. So you know, I, I manage that volatility with position sizing. Uh, but yes, I'm still uh, fairly bullish on on precious metal miners. So what are you really bullish on? Uh, well, for the next year or so, probably Bitcoin. Uh, I knew because, I was waiting for that because I have. Yeah. Well, because so in the past couple of years. My highest conviction uh, view was the precious metals, and I had no position in Bitcoin. Uh, and I, you know, I analyzed it in 2017, and and uh, I just I didn't have a position, uh, and I was skeptical about some things about it. So I, I wasn't strongly bearish, but I just wasn't, you know, I was kind of leaning bearish a little bit. Uh, but in April of this year, I turned uh, bullish, uh, and then I just in May and June that just got even stronger, just bullish conviction. Uh, basically, where we are in the having cycle. And how kind of uncorrelated Bitcoin is to other things. If you look at the Bitcoin log chart and compare it to the halving points, it's clearly operating on its own cycle. It's just it's so for me that's a more isolated trade. With gold and silver, I have to take into account that whole kind of fiscal reflation, you know, off on situation. Uh, whereas Bitcoin, I think, is going to be, you know, I think around the margins, things like liquidity and reflation on or off can affect some of the some of the you know the daily, weekly, monthly action. But I think that you know. The price difference between now and say the end of 2021 is not going to be strongly influenced by other factors. It's mostly influenced by how much Bitcoin demand there is compared to the reduced supply. So I think that's at least at least uh, you know when managing position sizes, I think that's one of the easiest kind of asymmetric trades at this current time, where it's not guaranteed, but the upside is so many more times than the downside. Yeah, and that's how I say. I mean, I just it's almost I can't see any trade that comes close, even kind of volatility adjusted. Um, right now for this period ahead. As you say, the year, 18 months ahead, it just feels like it's the superior trade. You know, gold had that run, Bitcoin, you know, consolidated for a long period of time. We had the halving, it kind of, you know, and we've had a lot of regulatory changes in the US that allows yeah. banks to custody it, which means basically that's code word for we can prime both 
prime broker Bitcoin for hedge funds. Yeah, and and we've seen kind of the institutional access build out, right? So there's more, there's it's easier for institutions to access it now. Uh, we've seen Paul Tudor Jones kind of kind of come forward and kind of open the floodgates a little bit potentially for more institutional money, uh, and the ecosystem around Bitcoin just gets stronger with each halving cycle. So there's more companies kind of making it easier for retail to access it, uh, and you know institutionals uh, can access it like you point out pretty well. And also we've we've seen uh, kind of a rise in Robinhood trading this year. And they can buy they can buy Bitcoin right on right on the app. So if that if some of that kind of you know instead of buying bankrupt companies, they can switch over to the cryptos and ha- have a have a blast with that. So yeah, uh, and we've seen Davy Day Trader is now you know yeah it's now become a crypto guy because yeah you know, bizarrely it's because it's not regulated by the SEC as much. So yeah. he can basically pump it up. I don't really know how to think of that through, but I can understand that retail money is going to come back into it along with institutional. One of the things that I think about, and you probably think the same way, is it's one of the biggest legitimate front-running opportunities I've ever seen, because you kind of know where the herd has to go, which is all the institutions. And the more it goes up in price, the bigger the market cap is, the more they have to do it. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, the more gets hard to ignore. And and so far from the having cycles, that's kind of the general trend is is you know the, the the supply is cut in half, the new supply gets cut in half, there's still demand for it, so that that starts kind of pushing up price. And then when it pushes up price enough, you get the momentum traders in there, and then you know that pushes it up even more, and then you get the FOMO traders. Uh, and so it's I think a really asymmetric bet to just say, okay, we're in the early stage of a halving cycle. You know, it's possible this halving cycle doesn't play out anything like the other the other ones, and it just totally flops. Uh, or just to say, okay, I have a specific time frame. I'm willing to risk a specific percentage of my capital to see how this plays out for a year and a half, and just see if that same pattern happens. And because demand is still strong, uh, and because there are more institutional access points, I don't I don't have a strong case as to why it wouldn't be kind of a similar price shape as yeah, the it's previous. it's pretty reflexive right now, because we're all set up for it. Yeah. We know what's coming. We know that the flow of funds are coming, and we know how retail is going to react with it. So yeah. it's, it's almost a potential self-fulfilling profit. As you say, yeah. there's no guarantee here, but it's as yeah. good a quality trade as I can see yeah. anyway right now. Yeah, I think the risk rewards just just very good, especially when someone manages their position sizing and they have a specific kind of time frame. And do you look at Ethereum yet, or just mainly Bitcoin? I, I've looked at a bunch of them, and my my uh, approach is to stick with purely Bitcoin. Uh, you know, for this cycle at least, uh, I, I'm just I'm specifically bullish on Bitcoin. I know you've gotten into both. Uh, I don't know if you had a if you had any updates on on Ethereum. Not really. I mean, I'm you know, Ethereum for me is. Is a bet on the system, and Bitcoin is a bet on the reserve asset itself. Yeah. So you know, and it's like gold, silver. I think you know, um, Ethereum was underpriced versus Bitcoin, and no stronger view than that. Really, like you, my core view is Bitcoin, Bitcoin. But I'm just trading around it because I think there's more opportunities in Ethereum, and uh, you know, I'm looking at buying it as it, as it you know, it's been correcting the last few days, and I just think you know. There's no real reason if retail gets sucked in that it's not going to go up further because it's slightly more speculative. Here's something interesting I saw yesterday on Twitter. If you saw it, somebody put the Bitcoin dominance over the altcoin. So, I how much of the total market cap of the of the entire kind of crypto universe Bitcoin has versus the U.S. dollar? I actually did see that. Yeah, uh, yeah. I haven't I haven't dug into it. I'm wondering if it's a, if it's kind of a random correlation. Uh, or if it's actually somewhat causal, yeah. I don't know. It struck me, and I looked at it, and it's it's very similar. If you look at the Ethereum Bitcoin cross rate against the DXY, and it, that would be the same, I guess, as the gold silver cross rate. So there's some there's some informational value I've not yet processed yeah. within that. Yeah, it's interesting. I keep trying to find correlations like that. When I was doing research for Bitcoin, I was always trying to figure out, say, you know, are there certain liquidity indicators that that correlate really well with it? Is it is it how much of a liquidity play is it? Uh, and it really wasn't until I saw, you know, kind of the log chart and the halving cycle that was the clearest, like, unmistakable pattern. What is so great as an asset is it doesn't correlate over longer yeah. terms, as you say. So it's it's hugely accretive to a portfolio. Yeah. 
Yeah, especially, you know, especially if you kind of pay attention to the having cycle and it just operates on its its own beat pretty much. And, you know, it, there's still like brief periods where correlations go to one. So, for example, its price was definitely influenced in March by the broader macro picture. But that was a blip on the radar, uh, whereas the, the, the you know, the, the year long outcome is, is mostly just operating on its own its own beat. And so you're more bullish on Bitcoin than you are on Precious right now. Yeah, uh, over the next year and a half, at least, uh, you know, I think. Uh, over this period, we've we've seen very strong uh, price action in the precious metals. Uh, I remain bullish. Uh, I just think the the easy the easier part of the trade is finished, and now it's the harder part of the trade, which I'm willing to stick with. Uh, but I've also been been hedging the difficulty of that by just having a Bitcoin position because I think, and ironically, at least for this specific year and a half, I think it's the easier trade. Right. I'm going to ask you some questions that we've got from our audience about a lot of things we've been talking about. Um, so here's a question again about Bitcoin is, how do you see Bitcoin performing in another risk-off event? I think it could be like March, where I think we could have a, a blip. I think we could have a, a down. I'd be a buyer of that. I think that'd be corrective. Uh, so, you know, it, again, in the grand scheme of, of managing position size, so, so, so uh, not going kind of maybe overboard with it. But if we get that kind of pullback, uh, I would use that as a chance to probably accumulate more. I think we could, I think it has strong correlations to liquidity in the very near term. So if we have a sharp liquidity issue, I do think you could see a, a pullback, but I don't think that changes, say, the price where the price ends up in, in late January 2020 or late 2021. Yeah. It's kind of like gold as well. Gold has short term liquidity issues because it's, yeah. it's quality, quality collateral, right? So you exactly. liquidate yeah. your quality collateral to pay for other things. So of course it gets hit, but it doesn't last yeah. long. I agree. That's how I view it. Um, when we're talking about emerging markets, which ones do you favor looking forwards? I mean, right now is probably still a bit of a mix in emerging markets. No, nobody's doing anything specific. But if you're looking forward to that longer term time, time horizon, what are the emerging markets that you kind of favor or think you favor at this point? Yeah, so I uh, I like India for the most part. Now I've actually been surprised at how weak they've they performed in in this uh, you know period so far. They they've uh, they're one of the few countries where uh, COVID cases are still uh, rising uh, very quickly, and some of their economic data has been weaker than I would have guessed. So that that I think that still takes time to play out. Uh, but I am I'm pretty bullish. Say if you look you know looking back at the end of the decade, which equity markets did well, I think India has a good uh, case for doing well. Uh, its valuations, it's always one of the more expensive markets because, you know, always. the demographic, yeah. Always. Yeah, the demographics are great. The debt levels are pretty low. They're not one of those countries that have a ton of dollar-denominated debt. Uh, their currency tends to be weak because they, you know, they they have to import a lot of oil, so they they kind of you know burn these consistent uh, trade trade deficits. Uh, so, but I do think that uh, you know valuation wise, even though it's it's not cheap, it's it's compared to its long term history, it's not like it was in in two thousand seven. It's not in bubble territory. I think it's it's uh, considering the growth and the and the and the demographics and the balance sheet. I do think that uh, that's a pretty strong equity market over over the long term. Uh, on the opposite end of the spectrum, I actually like Russia. Uh, it's the op it's slow growth, uh, uh, but it's it's super cheap. It's it's been cheap for a while, but it's still cheap. Uh, and they actually so they went into this crisis with a fiscal surplus, a trade surplus, very low debt, uh, more reserves than external debt. Uh, and uh, you know they have the highest uh, say gold to M two ratio, uh, pretty much of any major country. So they have tons of gold. Uh, they you know they they just have tons of reserves. A lot of it's gold based. Um, you know, it's really obviously depends on oil prices, uh, and so to some extent, I like to combine that with my India trade. So, because India prefers lower commodity prices, Russia com prefers high commodity prices, and besides those two factors, I like them both long term here. So, having them both in a portfolio kind of takes out some of that commodity question to some extent, and and kind of which one does better, I think, will depend a lot on commodity prices. Um, I like some of the the, the Chinese uh, tech stocks. I like Tencent, for example. Now. China is a is a black box to some extent. You can't, you know, it's 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 not a trade I like too much. Um, but uh, especially when you look at say an emerging markets ETF, uh, one of the problems is that China dominates it. So it's like something like forty percent China. So that's actually one reason I like to diversify away from the broad emerging market ETFs and and use some single country exposure to say get more Russia, more India, things like that. But I do I do think China at current valuations, uh, especially for some of their companies that aren't, you know, because China, of course, has that really large corporate debt problem. 
uh, but it's not. It's, it's a lot of it's in the real estate sector, so you don't really see it in companies like Tencent. So uh, I do think kind of a selective Chinese exposure. Uh, you know, kind of taking into account that you know the numbers, uh, you know, could be, <laughs> made could be all, are made up. So I think uh, kind of you know whatever position you would have, just have less of it. Uh, so the fundamentals look good. Discount it by the fact that. You know, there's a question about how how real those fundamentals are. So, that's, you might as well call that the superpower basket: China, India, Russia. Yeah, I, yeah, superpower basket. <laughs> uh, I, I think it, Latin America is pretty pressured. Uh, I, I've had some selective stocks down there, but I'm I'm more uh, selective on on individual names rather than indices. Uh, I, I think some of the other countries in in Asia. I mean, South Korea, MSCI still confer, still considers an emerging market, but they have better net they have better internet than I have. So, uh, you know. Yeah, I don't know. Somebody's got to reclassify all that stuff. I mean, Taiwan yeah. and South Korea are not emerging markets. Yeah. Oh, FT, FTSE considers uh, South Korea developed. So if you look at, say, a Vanguard Emerging Markets Index, South Korea is not there. Whereas in the iShares MSCI, uh, that's we you have Korea in there. So yeah, it's it's I, I don't consider it emerging, but if we're, if we're going to call it that, uh, you know, I think it has some promise. Uh, so yeah, they're they're the countries that I'm kind of favoring. Uh, right, some more questions. Um, so somebody's actually asking, sorry, flipping back to the crypto and gold, is how, so Lynn has mentioned in the past, she thinks about her precious metals investment in terms of liquidity layers from physical to ETFs, with physical being the last layer. Does she think about Bitcoin in the same fashion, cold storage to, you know, the, the Bitcoin trust? Uh, what price would she exit her respective Bitcoin layers? Oh yeah, it's a, that's actually followed you very closely. That's a really good question. Yeah. So yeah, with, with, to, for people that aren't aware, see, I I've described my precious metals exposures layers. So I have physical layer, which I'd be very slow to sell. The only time I ever sold physical was was 2011, and part of that was luck. But uh, so I, I don't I don't really trade that. Whereas then I have the the miners, uh, some some ETFs. I prefer some of the harder ETFs like uh, like Sprott funds and or Perth Mint rather than the GLD, but it's still liquid. So you know, for for my purposes. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'd be quicker to sell some of those liquid positions. Now, bringing that to the to the uh, you know crypto space, I, I do have a similar approach. So, I have a, a, a you know a, a layer of that in cold storage, which I would be slow to sell. Uh, I'm not even sure I would sell it in this halving cycle, for example. Uh, whereas uh, I have then a more liquid layer uh, that I, I I my plan is to kind of taper some of that out uh, if we see price action in this halving cycle that's anywhere near like the previous halving cycle. So if we see that kind of pretty sharp rise in in 2021, uh, you know, instead of trying to time the top exactly, I'd probably would start layering out some of that liquid position. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, cold the like cold storage position, uh, it'd have to get pretty crazy for me to kind of dig into that and and release that. Uh, but you know, I think I could trim it uh, in this cycle. Uh, I don't. I don't really plan on going to a zero Bitcoin position, so I don't. I don't plan on fully loading that 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 kind of lower layer. Uh, another question on gold and silver. Well, beyond gold and silver, spe specifically platinum, which has been consolidating for some time, and copper. We talked a little bit about copper. So, yeah. your views on those? Uh, so, I don't. I don't follow the platinum market as closely. Uh, I've I followed it to some extent. Uh, I I am somewhat bullish on it. I have a little bit of platinum exposure. Uh, but it's just it's a much smaller position compared to gold and silver because I, I you know I have a long history of tracking gold and silver. Uh, in some ways, they were you know they were essentially my first investment, so I, I have a very long history of, of keeping up with those markets. Whereas platinum is is more kind of industrial based, and it's almost like I have as like a tail position in case there's some shortage or in case we we switch back more towards towards using uh, platinum in some industry. Uh, so for me, it's kind of a if it's, it's a slight diversifier. On my precious metals position, rather than kind of a core thesis, and copper. Yeah, so as we discussed, I'm I'm pretty bullish copper long term. There hasn't been a lot of new uh, development. Uh, now it's very dependent on on China's consumption because China is responsible for like half of copper. So that's kind of the big tail risk is China's a black box. So what what happens with their copper demand? Um, I do think we're, you know, going back to India. I do think India could be a pretty big source yeah. of copper demand in the 2020s. They have a much smaller copper installed base per capita than China, and even China, even despite all its infrastructure, they have less copper per capita installed than than you know the the Western countries. So I I do think I'm I'm pretty bullish on copper for the 2020s. Uh, but it is you know there's risk related to especially to China. Yeah, and you know I'm the same with India. Is look, you know I'm half Indian. I spend a lot of time there. 
and they've got a lot of building to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think if anybody's going to drive the next commodity supercycle, you need a demand yeah. side of the equation. It's certainly not going to come out of the West. Yeah, sure, we yeah. might get an infrastructure bill in the US and Europe, but really, it has to be India. There's nobody yeah. else that can move the dial enough to do that. I agree. Yeah, I, I view it as so. I think we're because of how how impactful. It, again, bringing back to the long term debt cycle, in addition to this this whole COVID nineteen hit, I think that you know in the 2020s, some of these Western countries are going to turn to more uh, infrastructure. Uh, to, to try to kind of prop up their economies. And for example, the electrical grid in the U.S. needs much bigger upgrades if it's going to support more electrical vehicles and things like that. So I do think that that can drive some marginal demand for copper. Uh, but yeah, I think I think India is kind of the, the saving grace for copper. Uh, and then, you know, some degree to, to some degrees, other emerging markets. But I think India is kind of the headline there for uh, driving copper. Uh, and then the other yeah. side of it is this, there's not a ton of new supply uh, at current prices, like there's, you know, there's more supply they could bring online at higher prices, but at current prices, it's not really incentivized to bring any new supply online. And there's actually been pretty significant expiration costs, and they're still just not finding a ton of copper. Uh, so, you know, I think that it's kind of an inevitable, almost an inevitable situation. But the timing is is is, you know, there's multiple years of variance there for for how long that trade takes to play out. So I, I like having some copper exposure. Um, okay, final question is, what would cause you to change your mind on precious metals? When would you say, right, I need to get out, trade's done? Um, I think, uh, essentially, if we get kind of almost like a good thing, like if we get uh, kind of a blow-off top in precious metals. So I was getting a little nervous when it was starting to go vertical in the past month. Now we've had some corrective action. Uh, I've identified, uh, you know, a time that I would probably sell a lot of my liquid position would be if we get a more reflationary trade. They do yield curve control. Uh, real yields go, you know, more negative, and we get kind of a blow off top of precious metals. Then I'm kind of out of catalysts for the near term for why I should still hold it. Uh, so I probably would reduce my liquid exposure. Uh, on the other side, there's not a ton that would make me want to get out of it because most of the things that would be bearish for Precious metals, uh, say like we get uh, higher real yields, more disinflation, deflation. You know, we could see consolidations in the precious metals, but I think equities could could be worse, right? So uh, between bonds, equities, you know, I always kind of view it as what is what does gold and silver replace in the portfolio? Like what would I put in there if not for them? So uh, I don't really see equities or or bonds doing much better over a multi-year period than them, especially equities. Uh, so there's not a ton that would make me kind of sell it on the bear side. Uh, that's kind of my answer. Yeah. The, my, I, I, I thought this through myself recently. I thought, what would, in what scenario would gold, would I want to get out of gold? And yes, like you, you know, if it goes up, excess speculation, of course. Um, the other one would be one and a half to two percent GDP growth, and one and a half percent inflation. Yeah, that's kind of low volatility, okay world, it's just not good world for gold. Yeah. You know, no, I think of, either I, tail yeah. is fantastic. You know, gold, I think, has got a smile to it, somewhat like the dollar has a smile to it. Um, gold's got a smile to it. And somewhere in the middle in that kind of Goldilocks economy, it's, like a, it's not great for gold. I agree. Yeah, there's like I think that's it's kind of an intermediate thing where I think there could be a year or so in, in here where we get years like that. They're just – Gold is just dead for a year, uh, so that that's my my concern on the bear side is is not necessarily like a, a big kind of bear cycle for gold, uh, but more just like a bad year here and there, uh, and and kind of trying to manage the risk of of that happening. Yeah, essentially we got it from two thousand and eleven to two thousand and eighteen, really. Yeah, you know, and what that was in the big picture. It was just a sideways correction. Sure, it was quite a big range, but yeah. really it was just a sideways correction. Gold did its thing because that was a, there was kind of less monetary largesse around, et cetera, et cetera, and gold kind of just rested. And then yeah. as soon as things pick up again, then gold does its thing. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, have a, I have a model that kind of tracks gold price relative to money supply growth and interest rates. And so in, if you look back in 1980 and 2011, it got way ahead of the model. Uh, whereas in in this period, it's it's not really ahead of the model like it was back then. So uh, you know, it would have to run a little bit further for me to say I think it's overvalued. I think it's dangerous. Uh, but I do think if we get a more Goldilocks period, I think you know it, it won't be. I, I I 
would be surprised to see a, a big kind of multi-year bear market consolidation, but I do think we could see a smaller, uh, you know, year, two-year, uh, just kind of slumpy period for gold because it's just there's nothing driving it in that year. One one thing I do is I've got a basket of 27 currencies versus gold, um, and that's super interesting because it, it does exactly what you'd imagine it should do. It offsets all the currency weakening of these 27 currencies. We've lost Lynn again. So I think we will call it a day. Uh, thank Lynn, everybody. And um, hopefully, if there's any other questions, put them in the comment section. I'll get Lynn to weigh in, if possible. Okay, thanks all for tuning in. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.